significant of the signs in John's gospel. You know, last week we talked about when Jesus turns water into wine at Cana of Galilee. And this week we're moving to the second sign. And the second sign's social location is very similar to that of the first. You're in, you're in Cana of Galilee again. Now, one of the things that, that I miss saying about this is the reason why these first two signs are in Cana of Galilee is, is this... Um, uh, I was just thinking now I have two jokes about this today. But um, the one is, is that that Nathaniel, when they come to him and they say, oh, we found the Messiahs from Nazareth, he says, what good could come out of Nazareth, right? Um, which is a little bit like, you know, here you just look down valley. So Aspen, what good could come out of Elgebel? Elgebel, what good could come out of Carbondale? Carbondale, what good could come out of Glenwood? Glenwood, what good could come out of Rifle? And then we just, and then, then everybody picks on parachute. It's the end of the line before you really can, can go down. Um, uh, it's true, right? Because then you got to go to a different county, right? So that's the end of the line. Um, what good can come out of the battlement is maybe what they say. Uh, but, but there's this idea of what good can come out of that place. And, and Nathaniel is from Cana, right? So the two signs that Jesus does there, and he says, you're impressed that I knew you were sitting under this tree is what happens in that first chapter of John. And what he says is, is that you'll see greater things than that. So what we saw with the first sign was Jesus' provision at a, at a wedding uh, that runs out of wine. And we talked about how you can miss the overarching point, right? Because that sign is very weird if you just think about it as Jesus being like, the party's still going, I need to make more wine for this party, right? It's, if, you, if you like wine, it's not the worst sign. But if you don't like wine and you're trying to figure out what Jesus is doing here, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But we talked about how Jesus is, is, is the wine it said had lack. The wine had run out. And how when life runs out, when things run out, that Christ refills them. Christ, Christ makes something new. And so it was in these purification things that the Jews used. And what it said is, is that when, the, when it ran out, Christ took something old and fused it with the new life of what he's about to do. He changed the way things are. And so that sign, that first sign was in Cana of Galilee. And this Sunday, we're looking at that second sign, which is also in Cana of Galilee. And the passage starts for us this morning by, um, by talking about a prophet not being welcome in his own town. There's, there's, we've talked about how John is different. This idea that prophet is not welcome in his own town is in all four Gospels. There's a couple words and scenes that are very particular to all four Gospels, but this is one of them. And one of the things I've been convinced is if you've been reading through the Gospel of John that we picked up, and we have extras, I meant to bring them out, but if you still don't have a Gospel of John to be reading through, is that the beginning John 1, that amazing passage, sort of tells the Gospel in miniature that John's going to present. It tells the story, and so what happens is, is that he came to his own, it says in the first chapter, but they did not accept him, they rejected him. And so what happens with this phrase that a prophet is not honored in his own town is that as Jesus comes to his own in many different places and guises that he finds himself rejected over and over again. What's interesting is he's leaving Samaria though, right? In the scene before this as we've doing this by signs rather than going through the whole thing, he has this conversation with this woman at a well, the Samaritan woman. What happens is when they leave that place, all of Samaria believes and they want Jesus to stay with them. Now, Samaritans are like half-dogs, or half-breeds. Uh, they're like dogs to the Jews. And these people who were outsiders, these ones who worship at a mountain instead of the temple, were caught up in who Jesus was. They were, they were becoming true worshipers of who Jesus was. And so Jesus is leaving a region that you would be like, okay, the Messiah, the King of Israel comes, do the Samaritans figure it out? 
good money, Super Bowl's coming, says no. Um, uh, very good money would say no. But what happens is, is, is what we find in Jesus, and this we know is true sort of for our own selves, is that nobody figures it out. He comes to them and speaks and provides words of life. So it's not that they figured it out and the Jews didn't. But that as Jesus comes, it, there's different reactions to Jesus. Now, one of the things, if you've read through John already, if you want to read it through a second time, um, there's this, there's this uh, argument that John is really just this prolonged trial of Jesus. So what John says at the end is, is that these things were written, which you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that believing in him you may have life in your name, is that it's written in the sense of the whole way, like a trial. Witnesses occurs like once in each of the other Gospels. Witnesses occurs like 19 times in the Gospel of John. There are witnesses called up. There are people who see things and signs and then they respond and tell what they saw. This is what happens with the Samaritan woman. There are people who, who sort of engage in these things. And so the whole thing, if you, if you have a chance to reread John again or if you're in the motion of reading it or going through it, is that you could look at it as this trial that's being played out. And in this trial, there are people who see these signs and reject Jesus. There are people who see these signs and, ex and, and believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus. But it's, but it's this prolonged sort of trial over who the witness of this one is. And so we've been looking at these signs as we go through them, as the signs point to something greater. Now, what happens next in this passage is that Jesus talks to the, to the people that have surrounded him about that signs and wonders is what you want. Sign and wonders, of, uh, I'll check exactly, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. Is the first thing that sort of happens to him. And, it, and it, that's his response to the man who wants his son healed. As he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. There's two things going on here. The first is going back to last week. We talked about that, that idea of signs. If you just think they're about the signs, it becomes just the facts, right? What are just the facts of this case? Well, this guy's son was sick and Jesus healed him, right? But what actually the signs are doing, they're grounding this story in a deeper reality. They're pointing to something else, as signs do, right? Um, a stop sign doesn't just enact, it is a stop sign, but in the appropriate context, it causes you to stop, and it points to the law, the hammer of the law that will come down on you if you blow through stop signs, right? It points to a, a complex web of relationships that make up the meaning of the stop sign. It's not just a stop sign. It's, it's this notion of that for us to survive the roads, um, we need to stop at them so we don't have four-car pileups at every intersection. Um, it's embedded in this sort of social relationship. Jesus' signs in John's gospel are embedded in the same way, right? So if you're like, well, these signs, are that's just a sign, and not in this sort of ways in which it's pointing to something greater. Or pointing backwards, as, as what Park read during the worship segment, is that story of Elijah when he comes to a woman whose son is dead and sick, and lays on him three times and brings him back to life. Like, these signs are not just the facts, they're the facts, but they're also pointing to this larger thing that John is trying to tell us about who Jesus is. So if you're looking for just the facts, and this is maybe what's the problem here with uh, the, the royal official who comes. You know, it's very hard to find artwork of the royal official. Apparently no artist really liked that. Does anybody know what scene this is then? 
The synoptics all tell the story of a Roman centurion who comes and asks for Jesus to heal his son. Um, it's different in John's gospel, whether it's the same story told differently or, or, or a different story, but, but there's like no, that's obviously a, a soldier, right? So there's very little story artwork of this one, uh, if you're wondering why that image doesn't look exactly like that. And if you're not as nerdy as I am, we're just going with it. Sorry, I delayed. Um, so, uh, but he comes, uh, and he may have this relationship is, what are just the facts of who Jesus is? He's the one who can bring life back to my son. He's the one who can restore life in this place. Jesus' rebuke, which is not a rebuke of just this man, but it seems to be a rebuke of the whole crowd, that unless you see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. As this man actually calls him out and says, he replies to Jesus' thing, which is within Jesus' rebuke, there's almost always still the promise. Jesus with Mary, when she says to him, you know, uh, um, can you do something about the lack of wine? He rebukes her too. But these rebukes always seem to contain the sign of promise. And they seem to contain most clearly the sign of grace, which is that these things become un un uh, come from God, right? As much as we may plead and try for God's favor, the first thing that Jesus does in these is says that that's not the way it is. It initiates from God. The same thing with grace in our lives. Grace doesn't come out of our own initiative. Grace comes out of God's initiative for us. And so with these signs, Jesus is clear to make the point that this is, this is where it initiates in him. The man replies to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He asks again, which is, which is this sort of greater sign of faith, moving from that first to that second. Moving from, from sort of, I just want the facts of what Jesus can do to sort of through rebuke, he moves to this other place. And Jesus replies to him, go, your son will live. The man takes Jesus at his word and departs from there. It's an interesting one is that Jesus takes the man at his word. Jesus believes is what most of your translations will have. And this is, this is just, oh man, these are always way smaller than I think they will be. Who has great eyesight? Um... Jesus, this is the word believe that appears here in John's gospel, right? And you can see all the different ways it's translated around it. Believe, believed, that trust and trust, this is the translations in the NIV. Faith, did, uh, took, put their trust in, rely on, that this is sort of the way this plays out. Do you believe in this? Now, what's interesting about this is belief is you would think, well, that's got to be a pretty prominent word in all of the New Testament. Here's a worse graph, which will be harder to figure out. Um, all these colors represent a book of the New Testament. We got that down. Um, that large orange color on the side is the book of John. Going back to that trial thing I pointed out earlier, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? It's not incidental that most of the, word, the use of the words, do you believe this, occur in the Gospel of John. Now, if you're looking up at the top, you'll see the three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke being blue, red, and a different kind of orange, which is not helpful. Um, but, but you can at least look at the pie and say, John, compared to the rest of the Gospels, is so much more into belief. John really wants to ask the question of, will you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? And so the characters that interact with Jesus, and this happened with the disciples at the end of the, 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 the miracle in Cana, is that they believed in him even more. 
They went from belief in him to greater belief in him. And it happens in this story too where it ends. Is that this word faith that's translated all these different ways, this, this word actually sort of appears in both formats. It goes from one to where they believe in him. They believe in him when he calls his disciples. This man goes away believing in Jesus. They believe in him. But what actually happens is the disciples that says after the miracle say they believed in him again. This man, when he goes back to his household and finds out that the son's been healed, it says that they believed that he believed in him and his whole household believed in him. See, what's interesting is we think of faith as sort of this one-time initiative. But what the Gospel of John is saying is you have, you have a place in which faith can expand for you. That faith can go from one point and become more expansive. It can open up wider. Which is not always the way we think about faith. Now, the chair is up here because I thought I'd get tired and I want to sit down. No, I wasn't at the chain smokers last night like Crystal was, so I've got plenty of energy today. Um, I'm jealous I brought that up because I'm jealous, not because there's anything wrong with that. Um, but I brought this chair up because what happened in, in oh man, I should have checked the time on this. Does, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard exists in a very Christian part of Europe during, I'll, I'll say the 1600s and look it up later, probably later than that, 1800s. Um, he existed in a very Christian part of the Netherlands, um, and, and he exists in this very Christian society. And what he becomes very, and when you think about that, you can think about the parallels to our society, as I talk about Kierkegaard's argument here, is in, in Kierkegaard's mind, everybody believed in God. And the question was, uh, do you believe in God, was kind of nonsensical. Everybody believed in God. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Um, and this is the way we sort of ask. And, and that Greek phrase, you'll notice, is translated trust. We don't quite know what me, we mean when we follow belief, right? It, do you believe in God? Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in dinosaurs? Do you believe in... We attach belief to all these things. Do you believe in fairies? Do you believe in, you know, these type of things? And that's not a great qualitative for the question of do you believe? Do you trust? Or what do you find a home in? Or where did you reside, Right? So, but what Kierengard was talking about is that they, uh, the, the leap of faith, is anybody familiar with the phrase leap of faith? Now that comes from Kierkegaard. So if you ever think of that phrase, that comes from Kierkegaard. Um, that everybody believed in the chair as if it were God in, in this part of Europe. Everybody believes in the chair. And so you would go to people and you say, do you believe in, in God? Which would be akin to asking them, do you believe in this chair? And they would say yes. The first thing that Kierkegaard wants to point out to them is that's not a very helpful way to think about truth. It's not a very helpful way to think about reality. And so the first thing that Kierkegaard sort of pushes people on is that the belief in the chair actually necessitates that you sit in the chair. So you can't walk around the chair. You just can't have chair in your culture. You just can't have God in your culture and not experience it. Well, you can, but you're certainly not doing what the thing requires. To have and believe in a God who is living and active is more than just do you believe in him and you check yes on a form, but to actually move into the place of sort of sitting in the chair, right? And that would change things. The, the, the practical, and so as um, Christians, when we do evangelism, we often put people in the category of it has to be empirically true. 
It doesn't matter if I get any comfort from sitting with God. It doesn't matter if that truth has borne out reality in my life. It doesn't matter if Jesus has healed my son, is the way we sort of do this in the modern world. But what actually Kierkegaard's argument is, is that objective truth is great, and we should believe in that, but it needs to have this place where it connects to your life, where you sit in the chair, where you move into that space. Now, if you think about the leap of faith, though, this is where it becomes more difficult, is because the leap of faith, you get to the void and you have to jump off not knowing that it's there, is Kierkegaard's argument. So if you've seen Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade, when he steps out onto that sort of platform to see that it's there, and then he throws rocks on it afterwards, where I'm like, me of little faith, I would have thrown the rocks first. Um, uh, but, but he's Indiana Jones, so he does that. Um, but, but he moves from this place of sort of trusting. And so the hardest part, I think, for Christians in North America today is that if you really want to say it's possible for us to sit in the chair, to ground ourselves in God, to find a place in the world, it becomes an argument that the chair doesn't exist. And we live in a world, while as much as we might say we believe in God, the argument that there's a place for us to reside and to rest and to find our home, or in the language of John's gospel, abide in the true vine, to move in that. Then, this is where the rub comes. Is that real, right? To just say, can we believe in God as a society is simple. Can we rest in the providential care of this God? Can we move into rest with it? Can we abide there? That's a different question. And it's hard to say, in the book study we just did, it, it talked about how atheism is the air we breathe as far as it goes anyways. So to say that I'm going to sit, I'm going to rest my life on this, I'm going to believe in this to the point of where someplace I can set as my home, that becomes the real challenge in the modern world. But I think we start with belief at one point, and it expands in our lives. It doesn't necessarily change, but it but expands. And this expanse names the, the ways in which we become to know and to trust in Jesus every, even more. It might be that the disciples and like this father is, they believed that the chair exists, that God is there, that there's a chance that God will fulfill his promises. But what they find on the other side of that is it makes the gateway to them resting in that news, of going into it deeper. Luther, when he talks about this passage, talks about how really most of life is moving into this space. And the last thing that I sort of want to hit on today is, is this message that which occurs three times at the end of this story is your son lives from Jesus, your son lives from uh, the crowd, and your son will live is when he remembers what Jesus had told him. It's like an Easter hymn. Your son lives, your son lives, your son lives. And what I think is, is the challenge of the modern world, the challenge of our faith today, is we are like those people who hear from Jesus, your son lives. That Christ is, as we sang in the death and the grave, that Christ has conquered death. That Christ has robbed the grave of its power. That Christ has defeated hell. Um, these type of things is we exist on the journey home, right? Uh, Cana and Capernaum, let's say, are 20 miles apart is, is sort of what people read. And so the father who believes this when he's with Jesus has 20-mile journey to find out that it's true. Most of the Christian life for us, I think, is hearing first 
And believing first, your life is free. You've been forgiven. Your family, what you've lost, lives. You too will live when you go to the grave. And then spending that long journey home, trusting in that news. Because the glorious news that will greet us, that greets us on that day when we, when we find our true rest in God, when God restores all of creation. And so, you know, the journey home, you can still see all the decay around you. You can still imagine all the worst things that can happen. The journey home doesn't solve all of those things. But we're promised when we arrive there, when we greet that place for Christ to send us back, is that we'll hear the news that what has died lives again. In the opening of John's gospel, which I, I keep going back to because I think it tells the gospel in miniature, it says that him, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That in Christ was life. He's the one who breaks open the bounds of death and creates life there. And so for us to hear that the first time from Jesus is to set that journey home, to be graded with it a third time, and then have it come back to us in memory all again. Um, that Christ has set us free. Your son lives. Your son lives. Your son lives. Let us pray. God, we exist in a world that's bent on death and decreation. Whether you're an, a royal official, whether you're a Roman centurion, whether you're the wealthiest person alive or the poorest, the door of death knocks for all of us. So we move our trust into you. We believe into you. We trust ourselves to you. When you answer us that that will be restored, that the creation that falls and fails, that that which is in lack, that that which is frustrated and decaying, we're called to believe and trust in that. God, may we hear that you live, that the one who is dead is now the living one, May that living inspire us on this journey in life to see what's really happening, to see what was lost will be found. We ask that this news may take residency in our hearts in a way that we can trust it, that we can rest in it, that we can abide in it. 20 miles is long, and we ask that you would be with us as we go. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.